All right. Well, thanks for being with us again for another episode of the Starfish in the Church podcast. And uh, Rob Wagner, Lance Ford here. And um, hey, hey. We do not want to waste much time with formalities or informalities. We, we really want to uh, spend it with and on our uh, guest today. And, and our guest today really is, is, is one of our personal heroes and is a shaper, uh, I know, of our perspective and we could you we could say theology and all that but i i would just say right now just as far as anybody that has shaped uh i know my personal view of the gospel and um the gospel of the kingdom mm-hmm. uh it's been scott mcknight and so uh scott is professor of new testament at, at uh, northern seminary in chicago uh we want to do the podcast so we can't list all the books that he's written (laughs) so there's been so many but we have to ask him a very important question so i grew up on the south side of chicago are you a cubs fan or a Sox fan this is not even a question (laughs) (laughs) it means you're a Sox fan excellent so glad to hear that our son played five summers in the cubs organization Hmm. and worked and worked with uh, for the cubs for 20 years i had no idea wow yeah, I'm yeah. so sorry about that. I are you still yeah. working through that? Are you recovered uh, from that? We're working on it. He's <laughs> he's resigned and he's moved on, and uh, we're not too happy with what's going on with the Cubs right now. Yeah, losing Theo and everything. Oh. Eh, it's worse than that. Yeah, no, it is a lot worse than that. Yeah, yeah. You, may, you may lose more from the rumors. Well, my dad yeah. worked at Chicago City Bank. He was vice president of commercial sales, so he used to entertained down at Comiskey and he used to let oh, me yeah. tag along. So I, yeah. I, I grew up loving the Sox, man. That's okay. We'll forgive you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> when their pitchers start batting, we'll consider it baseball. <laughs> it's real baseball then. <laughs> well, Scott, uh, just getting back to so many of the great books that you've written, um, um, King Jesus Gospel. Yes. Um, I, 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 I do not Blue know Parakeet, how many. I, Jesus yeah. Creed. Come on. I wish every evangelical in America, by law, would have to read the King Jesus Gospel. I mean, seriously, I think it might just change. I something. agree with that one. Yeah, yeah. I just, um, yeah. I really do. It's got to drive you nuts. Um, that would truly be in the spirit of the gospel to make it the law of the land. Absolutely, force people. That little piece of fundamentalism would go down well. I think it would be a good thing to do. Now, there's a little obscure book that a lot of people are not aware oh. of because it's never been in in paper print. Junia is not alone. Yes. Scott, we need to get that in print. We need the what? What can we do? That needs to. More people need to know about that little treasure. Okay, it's 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 in print at the back of the new editions of the Blue Parakeet. Well, I did, did not, not know. know that. Yes. Hidden treasure. It so it's yes. within the newest edition of the of Blue Parakeet. That's correct. Okay. Note that, folks. Yeah, that, was that was a lecture that I gave at Fuller Seminary the first time I I talked about it and kept thinking about it and then I I'd, I'd lecture it on to my students and then we put it at the back of Blue Parakeet, well, so it would be more available. I'm glad to hear that. Really glad to hear that. So that's another resource that we can have in our hip pocket now. Well, we really do want to uh, spend a lot of time today talking about your and your daughter's latest book, A Church Called Tove. Mm-hmm. And in fact, 
want to ask right off the bat, uh, now, a lot of my books I've written with co-authors, and I think that we all agree here, we're all authors, we agree that it's a lot easier to write a book by yourself than it is with a, a co-author. What's it like writing with your daughter, Scott? And I imagine you're, you're, you're telling me, Lance. I it's am a, telling Brad. It's a lot easier without yeah, a co-author. Exactly, brother. Um, what's that like, Scott? Well, um, Laura was the one who pushed for this book. And I came up with the uh, seminal ideas in the what we call the false narratives, fake news. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the false way of describing things going on at a church. And I came up with the Tove. So I'm responsible for the shaping of the content of the book. But she, um, she was uh, involved in the stories, mm. revising what I wrote so that it would make sense uh, for her. And then I would revise her stories and we went back and forth and she would she came up with a lot of stories. Mm. There's a lot of things we learned in this process that are not in the book at all. Hmm. And, um, and we, and so we would go back and forth on, is this story going to work? Should we take this story? And we need a positive story here. So we went back and forth uh, with that. So she's, I mean, it's not, it's not like I wrote it and put her name on it. No, She wrote sizable portions of it. In fact, the original uh, first chapter introduction of the book, she had told the story of Willow Creek, and it was about thirty-five pages. Wow! So it was it was quite long, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was reduced to just like two or three pages. Mm. So, so she did a lot of work, uh, and I I wrote things. Usually, when I write a book like this, anywhere from twenty-five to fifty percent of it is tossed away. Mm-hmm. is put into some file and reused some other way. And uh, sh- that happened to her as well. So it was fun. It wasn't, it was not a, it was not a problem. Yeah. Well, I, I, I expected it was. And, and I know because I've heard Laura on uh, uh, Julie Royce uh, podcast yes. when she interviewed yeah. you and Laura. And uh, obviously um, Laura can carry, she she can carry her own bags. It's very clear. She's an educator. Yep. She's a teacher. Um, yeah. So yeah, I started to ask the question: What did you learn about writing from her? So because uh, uh, I could just tell she's she's she knows what she she. It won't be her last book. I would not figure. If she no, shows, she so chooses. she does. She teaches grade schoolers. You know, so she she has rules for for English grammar <laughs> that, that that have to be followed. Uh, I say, Laura. Hemingway does not follow this rule. He's our best writer. So uh, she she pushed on those kinds of things, and she uh, she would chirp about them too. She'd write me, "Dad, this is a mistake." So. Well, I bet it was a joy. I bet it was a real joy. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, Scott. Before we dive into the content of your latest book, I want to ask kind of two bigger, kind of bigger context questions. Um, our book, The Starfish and the Spirit, is about reimagining the church as a decentralized network of reproducing disciples and leaders, microchurches. And uh, COVID, as you well know, has dramatically interrupted church as usual. You know, we're using yeah, the yeah. metaphor 
um, from Ori Brofman's book, the, the Spider and the Starfish. And the spider is about centralized. And mm-hmm. if you crush the head of a spider, you've destroyed the whole organism. A starfish, you, you cut off an arm of a starfish, you have two starfish because everything's present in every cell of the starfish to reproduce. And we make the case that is actually Jesus designed for the church. So I'm wondering, you know, COVID, this massive interruption, what are you hoping church leaders are gaining from this challenging time? Uh, what, what kind of awakening are you hoping or unveiling do you think uh, you hope church leaders take away from this massive disruption? I'm curious. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of pastors and a lot of different kinds of churches. So it's, um, it's not one thing for one for all. To me, one of the big issues is that I think most pastors have tried to carry on what they've been doing only now electronically. Mm. And I, I feel like uh, they've they've missed opportunities to learn things they, they could have learned. Mm. I think pastoring as pastoring has become far more significant. And I don't know how decentralized you guys are. I believe in pastors. Okay. So whatever you um, pastoral callings, I don't care if it, someone you have a senior pastor that's not the big issue Mm -hmm. but i think that this has become particularly paramount and you complexify covid and the pandemic with an unbelievably brutal time in politics Mm -hmm. Uh, you have a lot of people hurting right now Mm -hmm. who need one another Mm -hmm. and i think uh, pastors are are and churches are being pushed in the direction of seeing the significance of relationships yes. and friendships and love and community for the survival of church. Yes. Uh, and I also think that um, this is a this is a strange thing is that like our church now all of a sudden has people from all over the United States hmm. watching, and we're not a big church. Mm-hmm. It's it's a small church because these are friends of our church who, if they were in our area, they would come to our church. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now they're participating electronically. I think this is going to change some church, some sense mm-hmm. of church. There's going to be more digital formation in church. Um, but, um, you know, our concern has been some of these churches that have been abusive. It looks to me like uh, they're taking, the, the mega churches are going to take the biggest hits. Although, you know, if, if your idea of church is to go stand up for 15 minutes and sing with your hands in the air to a great band and then hear uh, an amazing communicator preach a sermon mm-hmm. for 45 minutes, soon as soon as COVID's lifted and people get vaccinated, people are going to go right back to where they were and they're not going to learn a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I, yeah, I we, ma- we make the case in our book that the most fundamental definition of church is that of a, an extended spiritual family that's oh. that owns the mission of Jesus around the person of Jesus. And what I hear you highlighting are those realities, that this is an unparalleled opportunity oh. inside of all this rage and emotional intensity and inside of all this uncertainty to rediscover 
the power of the family of God and the pastor's yeah. role in cultivating that kind of culture. Well, the um, in Pastor Paul, uh, this was this was a big thing for me. I, when I wrote Pastor Paul, which was giving lectures in Kansas City at the uh, Nazarene, yes, yeah, right, Nazarene School. Yeah. Um, I was going to begin with uh, pastors and friendship because I've read a lot about friendship in the classical world, especially in the writings of Aristotle and Cicero, Cicerone. And I, um, I wanted to work with friendship, but Paul kept pushing me away from the word friendship. And I started with Jesus and his relationship with the disciples. And he, he uses the word friendship a couple of times. It's, it's not at all big. But what struck me, two things, is the absence of philos language, which is friendship language in the Greek world, um, and would have been a, a different word in Latin, but the New Testament's not in Latin. And the other side of it is that Jesus is, and Paul, I mean, Paul's dominant by far. No questions asked, no rivals at hand. His, his most common image for a church is siblings. Mm -hmm. That's it. By far. Come on. Mm. So it's it's about brothers and sisters. Yes. Uh, and I'm even a little nervous about calling it family mm. because there, you know, there he, he does call himself father. Mm -hmm. You know. And but he it's uses not, a lot of mothering images to describe yes, he how uses he cares for them. Six times. Uh, he can use the uh, the mother language, but sibling is like a hundred. Yeah, yeah, it's just all throughout it, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's the dominant image. So he sees people in the church as as equals, as brothers yes. and sisters in Christ, yes, a family. Yes, yes. Come now on. families families in the ancient world were not uh, a radical communism in that sense. Mm -hmm. it, they were there was hierarchy, mm -hmm. responsibility more than. Mm -hmm. uh, than uh, dominance or power. Um, so siblings is the dominant word. And that was really important for me. And if, if I could say anything about churches is that this is the dimension of church that we miss the most. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had an outdoor Christmas sing song on, on Christmas Eve. It was so good mm -hmm. to see the faces of people mm -hmm. we have. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That uh, that's what we miss the most. I and I know when our church can start getting together as a whole, we we are not going to want to go home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're going to want to stay and find have dinner out what's on the grounds. All that. Yeah, old, what's happening? What's happening? Well, yeah. Let me let me throw you another one. Kind of a big picture question. You know, recently. The Southern Baptist Convention they issued a statement um, against critical race theory, um, and with books like the King Jesus Gospel, Jesus Creed, in the backdrop, um, what are your thoughts in general about denominations making corporate statements um, for hundreds or thousands of churches? You know, how does that differ from a creedal faith, um, and why do you advocate for that more creedal expression? Well, I like creed, but this is not creed. This is um, this is a culture war. Mm -hmm. This is where the church is entering into territory 
that they're doing it to it's virtue signaling. Mm. It's a way of grandstanding in public to let other people know that we're not like so-and-so. Mm-hmm. But they are, uh, the Southern Baptist decision on critical race theory was a colossal example of missing the whole point. I think that's from Brian McLaren. I think he said that. I don't know if he did or not, but I, I think Sounds I heard Sounds like Brian. something he'd say. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's something I think I heard from Brian. Well, um, critical race theory in a, as a total ideology uh, has weaknesses, like all ideologies. But its fundamental attitude and disposition and method is to uncover hidden dimensions of racism that are blocking equality Mm -hmm. or at least equity. And there could be nothing more consistent with the way of Jesus and the way of Paul and the gospel's impact than to find ways to break down inequalities and to bring equalities and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So to me, uh, you know, I, I have, um, economic theories that that at times I I get nervous about about critical theory as a general principle, going back to the Germans, um, and to critical race theory is that it, it can be it can be tied into a um, just a sort of a, a, a broad Marxist socialist agenda. But liberation theology had this theme at the beginning, too. But we've learned so much from liberation theology. Uh, and in, in, so I, when I find the Southern Baptist white guys standing up, making a statement like this, I think, sit down and let the people who are actually engaged in racial reconciliation talk about the value and weaknesses of the discipline. Instead, they, um, they grandstanded in front of everyone and ruined an opportunity for black leaders to find a voice mm-hmm. in the Southern Baptist Church. There's a um, Ray Chang, who's the chaplain at Wheaton, wrote on my blog, a long blog post about uh, the exodus of African-American pastors in the Southern Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get more, there's going to be more and yeah. more. And it's because of these kinds of silly uh, grandstanding acts uh, that, uh, I mean, it's, I've said enough. Well, thank you. Well, it strikes me that one thing that's unique about our scriptures is they're written from the underside. They're <laughs> written from the point of view of the oppressed rather than the oppressor. So there seems to be some... Yeah, you can't read the Magnificat of Mary <laughs> exactly, and think we're dealing with people who are in positions of power. Yes. Well, let's talk about your latest book, uh, A Church Called Tove. And um, I, I think the obvious place to start is... Well, what, well wait. What? The place to start is, why do you only have one T rather than two T's in Scott? What is going on there? <laughs> what is have going ever, on? Have you ever looked at a map of the United Kingdom and seen Scotland? There you go. Oh, okay, now I know. My, okay, grandpa, let's my grandpa is from Fife. You answered that question. <laughs> yeah. My grandpa's from Fife. Fife. Like, yeah, okay. So, yeah. Scott, uh, I'm sure this is the question you're asking all the time about a church called Tove. What is Tove? 
Tove is, is this is um, it, it started with a blog post in which I said about Willow Creek that what we need in churches is uh, an invasion of goodness. Mm, mm. Well, when I said goodness, I knew I was thinking of the Old Testament uh, term tove, which means good or goodness. But but what I um, I had never sat down and studied it extensively, but when I found people affirming and responding and asking for more about goodness. Hmm. I thought this is peculiar. Um, so I, st- I sat down, it, it is used some 200 times in the old Testament. And I, I would call it a master moral term, hmm. a master category. It is one that you can say Tove, it summarizes everything. So when the first hmm. Genesis chapter one, Everything that God looks at is tov. Mm. Tov ma'od is, uh, and is very good. Mm. All right. So, and it was not tov that that the man doesn't have a woman, a companion. That's her connecto. So what we have is a term that opens the Bible that's significant. It is found throughout the Old Testament as a master moral category. It describes who God is. It describes how God behaves. It describes what God designs. It describes the way God wants people to live. In the New Testament, we run into Jesus using this term. It's translated a few different ways in the, New, in the Gospels. Paul uses it, and it's a fundamental category. Uh, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is goodness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I ran into the problem is that I know Christians are afraid of this word tov. They're afraid of goodness. They don't. Um, if you say uh, I am good, people think you're you've lost your theological chops. Yeah, Jesus said there's none no good one, but God. That'd be, that's, uh, no, no, yeah. Paul Paul says this, and Isaiah says this, but there is none good in Romans three, chapter mm-hmm. ten, and so this becomes the paradigm for mm-hmm. Protestant thinking that we are not good. So therefore, we shouldn't be using this term. Okay, we need to see that as true. But the other side of admitting that we are not Tov is the power of grace and the Mm -hmm. Spirit Mm -hmm. to transform people who are corrupted into Tov agents of God's Tov in the world. Mm. So I wanted to sort of map that out. You know, I could have... I could have uh, written way way more on on this, and what I really found was uh, shockingly how little is actually written on this word. Mm. And uh, I was I was surprised. The the best was Chris Wright, um, you know, the Irish or UK scholar, and um, Belfast. This is a, this is a dilemma here to talk about Ireland uh, <laughs> and Chris Wright, but nonetheless. Nonetheless, I, I found this term really important. And then what we did is we, uh, Laura and I talked, Chris and I talked, my wife and Mark, her husband, we talked about the characteristics of churches that are corrupted if they had had Tove running, running all through, coursing through mm-hmm. their veins. Mm-hmm. What would they have done? So we picked seven categories um, to feast on as expressions of Tov. Um, and because it's a master moral category, all of these 
all of these other terms fit. But some of these other terms, like Christ-likeness, could be the master moral term. Mm -hmm. So tov and Christ-likeness to us are One synonyms. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in the for for folks that haven't read the book yet, um, throughout the book, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, so much of it is, I assume, precipitated by. Uh, I would say precipitated by the Willow Creek crisis. Uh, you and your wife, Laura, uh, your daughter who co-wrote the book with you, her and her husband were, were a part of Willow Creek. You'd been part of Willow Creek for many years. Uh, so you apply this in regard as a rebuke to their leadership culture that was overarching and then... You, you mostly focused on Willow Creek. There's other churches. I mean, we could talk about James McDonnell and, um, gosh, a few of the, you know, I'm trying to think of the, uh, you know, CJ Mahaney. Yeah, yeah. Mahaney. Yeah. Yeah. I think we left Driscoll alone. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I could have told some stuff about him. Too, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we, we, we could have too. But, uh, um, but you apply this goodness issue. To it, yes. Talk about that because I think that I found that fascinating, accurate, but very fascinating yeah. to say. This, this, this could be the answer to these culture, and you do talk about culture very much, especially early in. I think you give a couple yeah. of chapters early on about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, it's a cultural issue, uh, whether we have yeah, it yeah. or we don't have the tove. That's right. Um, our book uh, is not. Um, you know, a story of Willow or the Southern Baptist Church or Harvest with James McDonald or Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll or the Southern Baptist Church corruptions. Uh, I had at one time quite a bit about the Roman Catholic Church and the Curia in Rome, but the uh, editor said, your evangelical readers are just going to say, well, the Catholics are a lot worse, so we're not so bad. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, you know, you're true, right. Probably true. true. We'll, we'll, we'll you do anything to get out of trouble. But um, the uh, the point of the book is not um, even a rebuke. I, I like the word. I think it is. a. I think the book is a rebuke, Lance, but uh, it's not directed like that. Mm -hmm. It's it's a bit of an expose hmm. for the sake of redemption. Mm. We're telling these stories because they are signs, symptoms of a corrupted culture, toxic church cultures shaped by, by narcissists, power and fear and loyalty and celebrity culture and all this stuff. They shape those kinds of churches. And, but we wanted to say, you know, look, we can write a book that just exposes all this stuff an expose mm -hmm. and we'll all feel a little bit better because we've expressed our mimetic rivalry and we've thrown it all out on some scapegoat to use the language of Rene Girard. Mm -hmm. But no, that's not what we're doing. We do tell stories and we have a couple stories that nobody else has told. But the point was to say this, this happens because of a culture. And what we need to do in our churches is quit thinking if we get the right pastor or even the right teaching that everything will change. I mean, this is nonsense. Um, there's too many 
really good theologians who are fully corrupted, too many churches with pastors who can expound the scriptures, you know, from Genesis to Revelation in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but who are narcissistic and they build horrible church cultures. Mm -hmm. And then there's other people who aren't particularly gifted with exposition, who aren't particularly gifted with leadership and preaching skills and their band is terrible <laughs> and they are incredibly pastoral and loving and their church is just full of tov hmm. that's what we're concerned yeah. about and david brooks makes the statement this is when i read this i'd already written it up but i didn't have it said as well as david brooks did is that you know, you can never underestimate the significance of a culture where you work to make you the kind of person that fits in that culture. Mm -hmm. And this is what we have heard. I mean, Laura and I have gotten uh, uh, tweet, whatever they're called. What's it called uh, when people direct messages? Tweets, uh, IMs, DMs, uh -huh. DMs, yeah. And all these private letters of people describing toxic church cultures mm -hmm of pastors and leaders in Christian institutions who are deemed great Christians. Mm -hmm. And we discover that they are corrupted to the core mm -hmm. and they, you know, it's, it's going to burn down. Yeah. These kinds of things are going to burn down. Well, I want to say after reading the book, first of all, it is a hopeful book. So I think that you and Laura yeah. did a phenomenal job of it's. Well, it's not you. like this, you know, tell all, let's rake them across the coals deal. Yeah. I mean, you you had to go there early on, but it is a book full of hope, and uh, you know, the best critique of the bad is the is is the practice of the better. So it, it yeah, overweighs. Yeah. I just want the listeners to know it's a it's a tove book. It's a good book. There's good. Well, Lance, in it. you know we've we heard this uh, the other day. We were had, Laura and I were both on an interview, and someone said the book was for me so hopeful. Mm. And I said, I said that's that's exactly what we are hoping. Yeah, that's what I left that, with it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, y'all did a great job with it, and that's difficult with a subject like that, and especially yeah, when you do have firsthand stories. You guys were not removed. I mean, you were there, and yeah. then. Um, for listeners, whether they're aware of kind of the, the history over the last three or four years and, and the, the whole Willow Creek deal, you when you made a pretty brave move when you did finally blog about Willow Creek. Um, and that must have been difficult. And that was your church. That was, I mean, that was, how hard was that for you to do? Or were you just a little ticked off at that point? <laughs> or a little bit of both. Well, part of it is the story, and I've I've told it enough times that I still have to tell it. Um, Laura, Laura, immediate. We 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 sent the Chicago Tribune article ten minutes after it appeared in my inbox. I was looking at my computer when it appeared. We sent it to Laura and Mark because we knew they would be interested. They were out to eat with friends, and so they called us that night we had a conversation and it really helped Laura. And so Laura thought everybody's going to be thinking like my dad's thinking about this and we'll do better. I said, Laura, the biggest challenge for Willow right now is whether they're going to tell the truth or mm -hmm. they're going to protect their brand. Mm -hmm. And they chose. And I said, if they come out swinging, this is going to get ugly. Mm -hmm. 
And that's exactly what they did. So we talked, Laura and I talked, and she she wanted me to talk about it. And I said, no, you know, this is one of the things, you know, I, I don't get into the business of your church. I don't get into the business of other churches. They, they have to kind of conduct themselves. I don't know the inside story. Uh, I knew enough about Willow to know some of the inside mm-hmm. story. But uh, what really vexed me was how painful it was to the women mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. slandered or libeled, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. from the platform that they were liars, mm-hmm. colluders. And some of these people I know, mm-hmm. you know, I know that John Ortberg was not out to, to ax Bill Hybels. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that kind of, they didn't have a bad relationship. I know Nancy Ortberg. I knew Nancy Beach. I didn't know Vonda, but I got to know her. We got to know other people. So I was deeply vexed and bothered by what was going on with the women. And But Willow was clearly providing a strategy of stalling, trying to get these women to go away. And uh, I went off to, to uh, Turkey and Greece and Italy with a group of students for a tour, came back uh, about the middle of June, and this started, the, the story broke in March, uh, in June. Nothing is really going on. Willow is still not taking responsibility. So I call Laura and say, what's going on with the Willow story? She said, nothing. I said, okay, stuff I've been tell, talking to you, we're going to put it on the blog this week. Well, I am grateful that that story penetrated into that culture and and it shook that culture. Mm-hmm. I was told that it was it rattled the place for a week. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then then the New York Times story came out. It was all over. Everybody knew that yeah. the story was true. So I played that part uh, in it. But it was it was nothing that I wanted to do. I I I would never have thought this about Bill Hybels. Uh, I never trusted James McDonald, but that's that's another story. Um, I'm not surprised, I have to say, as someone who's been around long enough teaching in seminaries, I'm not surprised when we discover a pastor is a power monger, is uh, narcissistic. Uh, it's sad, and it's it's a part of the world of pastoring. Mm. Um, so, but uh, I think these things have to be described. Uh, they have to be described sensitively. Uh, I'm not out to hammer anybody, but uh, we we felt like the story had to be told for truth to be told. But most importantly, because the women who were abused needed their story to be Mm. announced as true. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the irony for so many of us was if there was a church that had been a leading church as an advocate for women and women in ministry and men, I mean— You'd have to say it was Willow, which was the oh, yeah. irony of it all, was it not? Yeah, it, it really. I mean, it's a, that's a sad underbelly, and I'm I'm ashamed to say that the new pastor is Jeff definitely not in that orbit. He doesn't seem to be one bit concerned about supporting women in ministry. But um, Bill Hybels got into it with Mark Driscoll over this very issue one time. So. Oh, I remember it was at Exponential. I remember seeing it unfold live. Do you remember that? I don't remember that one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was it was 
it was a gasping moment. It, it was a good moment. But Scott, let uh, me ask you this: um, We're hoping every listener will read your book, um, but many of them will have not read it yet. And we all, um, as leaders, as you mentioned, um, when you have a platform or a stage that is not a neutral space, a human soul in a spotlight on a platform over time will degenerate toward pride, toward narcissism. So what are, what is a, what are some of the warning signs that we are drifting from Tove personally um, and what's, what's your counsel? Like when you see, oh, there's, there's a warning light on my dashboard. Um, what are those warning lights? And then what are the initial steps um, to begin repentance, to begin the work of Tov? Yeah. Well, this is, this is a really good question, Rob, and it's a big one. And it, uh, I think Chuck DeGroat's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, I think mm-hmm. is the title. Mm-hmm. I think he deals with this more extensively than we do, and he knows more about it than I do. Um, this is more his field, but uh, it's something I've studied. Um, the other day, I, I was talking to, to Chuck DeGroat, and he said something that is really meaningful to me. He said, pastors are already mostly on the spectrum <laughs> because, they're, by and large, they're confident. You know, they they can they can be dramatic. You know, they they can be ambitious. They can become grandiose. You know, um, I want to have the biggest church in. You better Kansas watch it, Mister. Yes. <laughs> uh, they you can't can see be this podcast. Grandiose. I just held a knife up to Scott McNay. <laughs> so they. But once you're on that spectrum, it just slides. Mm. It slides in from grandiosity into narcissistic mm-hmm. rage. So here, here's what uh, I would say a, a couple signs. Number one, you need to have people who can speak the truth to you. If all your elders, leaders, whatever you call them in your church are yes people, you've got to change. You can't have this. You need to have people who check you. Mm. You need as a, a, as a can I reflect this but you need a confessional community. There there has to be at least a small community of people where you confess yeah. your sins, your yeah. weakness. Uh the second thing is I think you need to monitor and become self-aware of how you respond when someone criticizes you. Mm. Do you fume? Do you do you uh, get into a rage? You know, narcissists rage. This is a characteristic of mm-hmm. them. Some of them rage quietly, but they rage. They mm-hmm. become, they want, the, and they work to get back at that person. Or do you do you listen? You know, you know, my friend David Fitch and I, we can talk to one another pretty frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, you know, if other people heard us talking the way we do to one another. They would probably not want to teach with us. Oh, now see, I was—I have a different thought about that. About because I've thought about you and Fitch being together <laughs> so much. If some way we could get some microphones, just just catching conversations, I I think it stuff would sell well. I think you both could probably retire early because uh, <laughs> it's got to be some fascinating stuff between you and Fitch going on. 
But I mean, I think I think one of the things that we do for one another is we tell one another what we're thinking, mm. and we respect one another enough that we listen to what yeah. we have to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, if David gets mad at me and walks away, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know it. Um, but I, I think those are two things. Here's Rob. Here's the problem: people who are on the edge of the narcissistic spectrum. And I hear I'm talking psychology and diagnosis and stuff I don't know that much about. But they lack insight. They lack a capacity to understand themselves mm. and their weaknesses. They can't see themselves through the eyes of others. Mm. Others are wrong. Always. Okay. All right. And they lack empathy for other people. These are major characteristics, mm-hmm. along with grandiosity and and rage and all these things. Um, if you see these things in yourselves, you need to get a counselor. You need to be honest and you need to work on this. And it, you know, my wife's a psychologist. And when we were reading the stuff and, and working on mm. narcissism, I talked to her about it. As a psychologist, she would say narcissists are incurable. Now that's that's not a hundred percent. I've heard that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I've 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 heard uh, other professionals say that same thing. That it's it. Yeah. If it's not incurable, it's almost incurable. Yeah, that's that's the. Uh, this is the sad thing about it. But pastors. Uh, you know, there was a guy who wrote this study, and I talked to Chuck DeGroat, and I'll, I'll clarify this, is the pastor wrote a study that 70% of pastors or something like that are narcissists. Well, his stats were disproven. Mm-hmm. But most pastors are on the spectrum, mm-hmm. and uh, it bleeds back and forth probably. Mm-hmm. You know, not everything about yeah, them. They're not, that's the distinctive they're not, I heard. They're not clinically narcissists, yeah, but yeah. they're on the spectrum somewhere, mm-hmm. maybe 70% yeah. of them. Yeah. And so these are things that we need to be aware of. There is a sense in which uh, the pastorate attracts people like mm-hmm. this. Definitely. And it makes people like this worse mm-hmm. many times. Mm-hmm. So we need, we need, every pastor needs to know this when they get into it. This is going to make you intoxicated with yourself and power. And you're going to use your power against people. Do you have the Christian discipline? and graces to be the sort of person you should be in leading a church or not. Mm. That's what we need to ask. We need to work on character formation in seminaries as well as mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Amen. Scott, what would be, and I know that our time's running out, we want to be respectful of your time. Um, what is your, what is the, uh, your hope hung on right now? as far as moving forward for the church you know whether we talking about you know we're coming out of the covid we're this the shaking that's that's gone on in so many different areas uh whether it be race relations me too uh, things that we've talked about here uh, this afternoon um what makes you hopeful for the future of the church in particular the church in north america you know um i complained about um the skinny jeans generation in my book on the kingdom. And that's a, that's because, because I, I worry about such zeal for social justice that they're losing contact with evangelism and the church itself. 
Okay. But at the same time, I find the skinny jeans generation incredibly sensitive to issues that would have been sensitive for Jesus. That's a good thing. That is a really good thing. You know, my students have instincts for the hurting and the wounded. Yes. That when I went to seminary, I never heard a thing about and yes. I didn't see much of it. I can that's that culture has agree. completely changed in mm, the church. So true. And I think we are going to find evangelical type churches in the United States become increasingly sensitive to the wounded of our society. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a generation probably, and I may not be alive to see it, but I think we'll see in a generation or so churches that have turned inside out on these sorts of issues. And we will find um, a lived theology, mm. an orthopraxy mm. that has a, has a way of mapping on top of our Christian theology. And some of our Christian theology is just going to disappear into um, bookshelves that we used to read from. Wow. Wow. Well, that's a that's a that's a powerful, powerful thought to close on. Well, Scott, we uh, appreciate you you being with us today, and, and we hope that you will be like one of those recurring, returning guests. Well, we, I mean, well, I'd be glad to be back. We really would. Rob and I were you know talking this morning about this time with you, and we were like. We need like part one, part two, part four, part five. So hopefully we'll get to, to, to do more with you. But we really appreciate you being with us at this time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good to meet you, Rob. You too. Grace and peace, Scott. Thank you. Your fingerprints are all over the Kansas City underground. You don't even know it. <laughs> so true. So true. All right, folks. Thanks I'm for being with us to the next episode of The Starfish in the Church. <laughs>